You are listening to a message from City Church of Richmond, located in Richmond, Virginia. We are a broken people, loved by God, continually restored by Christ, and sent out to worship God, serve our city, and work for its renewal. To learn more about City Church and to find out how to get connected to our community, visit our website at citychurchrva.com. That's C-I-T-Y-C-H-U-R-C-H-R-V-A.com. And thanks for listening. It's good to see all of you here at City Church this afternoon. My name is Eric Bonkowski, and I'm one of the pastors here at City Church. And uh, something happened this week. It doesn't happen very often, but I wanted to uh, share it with you. I'm, I feel pretty pretty proud about it. I was able to uh, stump our music director, Adam Bailey, with a song. I, there was a song. He didn't know it. Um, and, and I felt pretty good about that. Uh, it's, a, it's an old song. It's a song from kind of my, the wheelhouse of my uh, Christian experience would be the early 90s. And I, I first learned it at a Young Life camp. It's a song called, Who Do You Say That I Am? Um, some of you may know that. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? Um, but for those of you who've never heard it before, I thought maybe I'd uh, just introduce it to you briefly. Um, it start, it's all about Jesus, and it says, um, You turned water to wine, and they called you magician. You gave sight to the blind, and they called you physician. Yeah, some of you know it, right? And then it asks, but what about you? And then it builds to the chorus and it says, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say is the Son of Man? Do people see what you believe? Who do you say that I am? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I sing that for you this afternoon partly because it's a perfect tie-in to this new um, sermon series that we have and partly to remind you why I don't lead a worship team. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's, you know, kind of a catchy song, particularly in my rendition of it, isn't it? Um, and, and me singing that to you reminds me of the, my failed tryout for a Christian a cappella group my freshman year of college. Um, and I'm sure you're scratching your head wondering why it was a failed attempt. Um, you know, the, the greatest thing about a cappella groups, though, while we're on the subject, is their names, right? Why does every a cappella group in the history of time have a punny name? Like, is it possible to have an a cappella group that doesn't have a pun in its name? I don't think so. Um, and I'll let you just think for a little bit about what an ideal name for a Christian a cappella group would be. Um, some of you probably were in them, um, but think about that. Text me your answers, and I'll choose the best one uh, next Sunday. Um, so uh, all of this to introduce our new sermon series here at City Church. Um, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, chapters 7 through 9, and uh, those chapters are answering this question, the question of that song. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus? And we'll, we'll see that throughout the Gospels, there are a lot of different uh, attempts at answering that question. Different people answer it in different ways. 
Um, but Luke wants to keep circling around that question because he knows, he believes, he understands that uh, the, the question of who Jesus is is central to human existence. And it's not just who Jesus is, but how do we respond to who Jesus is? Those two questions matter profoundly. And so uh, for the rest of the spring and through the summer here at City Church, we're going to be circling around those questions. And I think that whoever you are, whether you're uh, a new believer or you've been a follower of Jesus for some time, or or maybe uh, you're someone who doesn't really know that much about Jesus, this will be a perfect place for you to be. Or maybe you have a friend who is asking questions about Jesus. I read something this week that I loved. It was uh, someone who said, you know, I was at a point in my life where I was done with church, but God wasn't done with me. Maybe, maybe you're that person, or maybe you know that person, and this sermon series could be an open door to invite them and come uh, to ask that question, who do you say Jesus is? And in light of who Jesus is, how then do you live? That's what we're going to be talking about for the next several months. So let me read um, this first passage in Luke chapter 7. If you have a Bible, open up and follow along, or you're welcome also to read in the worship guide. The words are printed there for you as well. Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. It says this, After he, that's Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent him to elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And then when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the, uh, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel, Have I found such faith? And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Uh, Gracious Father, we know you're here in this place. We felt your spirit as we sang and as we confessed our faith. We have felt your presence through uh, our friends and family and even strangers who surround us in these pews. And now, Father, we desire to encounter The reality of your presence through your word, your word in the Bible and your word made flesh in Jesus, we pray that um, he would be uh, clear and true and big in our hearts and our lives because we've spent these few minutes looking at his life and his ministry. So be with us, we pray, encourage us, we ask, all through Jesus, amen. So today what I want to talk about with you is what is introduced here in Luke chapter 7. And it's uh, the simple fact of Jesus' authority. And then our response to Jesus' authority, which should be faith. So Jesus' authority and our faith. 
Now, the story of the Gospels, really all of the Gospels, but particularly Luke's Gospel, in the chapters leading up to where we pick up the story, is uh, essentially one of establishing Jesus' authority, showing that he has power. If you uh, look through those first few chapters, you'll see this phrase coming up again and again, that Jesus is one who teaches with authority. His words have power. But it also says that his actions have authority. So he casts out demons and he heals disease and he does that as one who has authority. And so as we get to chapter 7, it's really a continuation of what we've already seen. But it's a continuation with a little bit of a twist. There's a little bit of a difference here in chapter 7 that I want you to note. And the difference is that there's a new emphasis on distance, separation. Uh, We first are clued into this in verse 2. And it says this, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. You see, a centurion was someone who wasn't Jewish. Up until this point in Luke's gospel, all of Jesus' interactions have been with Jews, been with uh, sons and daughters of Israel. But now he has this interaction with someone who is a Gentile, someone who is a, a soldier, maybe a mercenary soldier, sort of an occupying force within Israel. And we still see Jesus' authority at work. Here's the other way that distance is emphasized. Maybe you noticed it as I was reading through this passage. Uh, The centurion and Jesus actually don't meet. All of this happens through intermediaries. In verse uh, 3, it says that the centurion had heard about Jesus and he sent elders, he sent Jewish leaders to Jesus to lobby for him, to advocate for his cause. And then Jesus comes and uh, draws near to him. He responds. And then the centurion sends some more friends along. And, and so Luke is paying attention to like the stage blocking, where these events are happening. Why is he doing that? He wants to emphasize the distance. Because Jesus still has authority. By the end of the passage, we see that Jesus is still able to heal, but he has so much power that he can do it at a distance. He doesn't have to draw near. He doesn't need to touch this servant who is ill. This isn't a matter matter of magic. This is a matter of Jesus' power. Luke is using these subtle ways, these nuanced ways to communicate to us that Jesus has authority. Wow, so Jesus is a man of authority, but there's only one problem, isn't there? We have a complicated relationship with authority, don't we? And by complicated, I mean we don't like it. We have this reaction to authority that uh, we bristle at it. We hesitate in the face of it. Tara Isabella Burton is a writer, and she has written a really good book that kind of reflects on on this generation, the, the current generation, and she says this, that today's generation rejects authority, institution, creed, and moral universalism. That's a lot of what Jesus embodies. And we have been habituated to reject those things. Maybe, first of all, authority. Now, why is that? Why are we so suspicious? Why are we so hesitant towards authority? Think about that for yourself a little bit. 
think there are probably multiple reasons, but there are at least two that came to mind for me. The first is that we have seen abuses of authority, and that makes us suspicious and hesitant in the face of it. And secondly, quite frankly, we think we know better. It's the effect of the internet, right? I don't need any authorities anymore because I've got the internet in my pocket. This makes us uh, chafe in the face of authority, whether it's Jesus or anyone else. We simply think we know better. When I was uh, a senior in college, uh, I thought I knew better. I was taking this class. It was... um, a a class. It was a good class, but I didn't really think that um, the conclusions of the professor were right in any way, and so uh, we got this final paper assigned to us, and I I didn't answer the question at all. I just gave my uh, critique of everything the professor had said during the class. In general, I am, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. I'm not, very, I'm not like your exemplar of a transgressive person towards authority, right? Like, I'm pretty straight-laced. But that example sticks out into my mind of how I chafed at authority. I couldn't even complete the assignment because I thought I knew better. And so that's the case for us as well. But what I want you to see about Jesus' authority is that there are a couple of characteristics that uh, can help us trust his authority and respond to his authority in a different way. In other words, Jesus is redeeming our twisted understanding of what authority is because uh, at its root, authority is something that God has given to us. It's baked into the image of God that humanity is meant to live with a certain degree of authority And Jesus, as the the full and complete image of God, even more so. And so these two qualities of Jesus' authority that redeem it for us are the fact that it's a stewarded authority and the fact that it's a generous authority. And I'll explain what those two things mean. But where we see that is actually through the centurion in this passage. It's very interesting what Luke is doing. Because he's talking all about the authority of Jesus, but he illustrates that in this kind of uh, roundabout way by focusing on the centurion. And the clue to this comes uh, towards the end of the passage. Verse 8, where the centurion himself says through his friends, For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it stewarded authority. What that means is that there is a check on authority. You notice how the centurion says, I too am a man under authority. He talks about the authority that he has over his servants, over the men, the hundred men who are in his battalion, but he also says, there's a greater authority above me. That redeems authority. It's stewarded. We don't see ourselves as gods in and of ourselves, but we are stewards of whatever authority God has given to us. Jesus embodies this perfectly. Jesus, although he is the Son of God, particularly as he is the incarnate Christ, is a man under authority, under the authority of the Father. He is God. He is equal to God. And yet, in his incarnation, he is stewarding that authority for others. Do you see how that redeems this idea of authority? It's not unchecked power. It's power in its proper form and function. The second dimension of authority 
again, that we see through the character of the centurion in this passage is that it's generous authority. And this makes all the difference. Makes all the difference. You see, because the key question that we're asking when we see authority in the world, in our lives, in those around us, is is this authority uh, combined with love? Is it authority combined with love? And I think in the centurion and then certainly in Jesus, we see the answer to that is yes. It's a generous authority. Look again at verse 2. It says, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. It's a servant. This is a powerful man. But he highly values his servant. And he notices that he is sick and at the point of death. And he is moved in love to reach out to Jesus who might be able to help. Do you see that dimension of authority? It's a generous authority. It's a loving authority. It's a valuing authority. And uh, the argument here in the passage is from lesser to greater. It's arguing that the centurion has this lesser generous authority. How much more so does Jesus, who interrupts his life, that he might go and be near this servant who's at the point of death? Generous authority. Andy Crouch is a writer and thinker, and he talks about this characteristic of authority. He says authority is not a bad thing when it's paired with love, when it's relational, and when it's true, and when it's generous. And then he uses a great example. This is in one of his books, and he he says the great example of generous authority, and I'm going to date myself with this reference, but some of you will appreciate it. He says the greatest example of it are, uh, are the two car mechanics from Car Talk. The old NPR show, Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers. And they were hilarious. And I remember as a kid, my dad would have car talk on on Saturday mornings. And he would just laugh. This deep belly laugh. And it's not because they were the only people who knew how to fix cars. It was because the way they carried the authority of their knowledge with laughter and with joy and with empathy and with understanding of the people who would call in with their questions. You see, it's not that authority in and of itself is bad. It's that we've become suspicious of it because we haven't seen stewarded in generous authority, authority that exists for the flourishing of other people. But that's the authority of Jesus. That's what Luke wants us to see. And you know the people in this world who are not suspicious of authority? Think about it for a minute. It's the weak. It's the desperate. It's the wounded. They're not suspicious of it because it's their only hope. So Jesus, Luke tells us here in Luke 7, is a man of authority. Well, what's the right response to who Jesus is? Again, the centurion gives us the answer, and the answer is faith. Jesus' authority must be matched by our faith. The centurion models for us the right response to the power and authority of Jesus. He shows us that the right response is faith. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him 
And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. First of all, in the Gospels, there are only two places where Jesus marvels. You've got to do something pretty impressive to get Jesus to marvel. There's one time in Mark chapter 6 where he marvels at the lack of faith of some people. This is the only place in all of the Gospels where Jesus marvels because of faith. Faith. He sees how this centurion responds to his authority and he says, yes, that's it. And he's moved in his spirit. And notice, uh, he's not marveling at the centurion because he was a really good guy. He's not marveling at him because he highly valued his servant. He's not marveling at him because uh, he had built a synagogue for the Jews and he had done a lot for the nation of Israel. He marvels at the man because of his faith. His faith. Because of the way that this man responded to his authority. The simple response to true authority. And you know who models this best of all? Children. Children. We can learn from our children, right? It's why Jesus says, as his disciples are talking about, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He says, uh, brings a child, he holds him on his lap and says, unless you become like this, Unless you respond to my power and my authority and my love the way a child does, who trustingly reaches out his hand for an adult, to grab hold of an adult's hand. You ever been at a party and um, your kids aren't there and you feel these two little hands grab your leg? Happens to me all the time. Maybe I have legs that look like other people's legs, right? But that's like this picture of trusting authority because a kid... Uh, has that moment of panic, that moment of fear, and says, oh, here's a big person. I'll trust that person. That's the right response to authority. That's the faith that the centurion shows. And I want to nuance this a little bit further. I talked about two dimensions of Jesus' authority. I want to point out two dimensions of the centurion's faith here that both are essential. It's humility and trust. That's essentially what faith is. It's humble trust. It's humility and trust. Humility, look at verse 6. Here's what, uh, as it says, Jesus went with them and he was still far from the house and the centurion sent friends and said, do not trouble yourself, Jesus, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. He says, I'm not worthy. And the reason this stands out to me, and it should stand out to you as well, is it's the exact opposite of what was said earlier in the passage. Did you catch that? In verse 4. The first people who come to Jesus says, they came to Jesus and they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy. They're trying to make their case. He's worthy. You've got to do this for him, Jesus. But uh, the centurion understands that in the face of authority, he is not worthy. He is small. He is little. And again and again in Scripture, whenever the true power of God is manifest, the the right response, the proper response, is one of cowering humility. So Brandon read for us in our Old Testament passage this great scene in uh, Isaiah 6. Angels flying all around and this vision of the holy God. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, I'm not worthy. 
Just a chapter or two before in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus calls to his disciples, and here he's calling Peter. And uh, Peter recognizes Jesus as the Christ, and he calls out, depart from me, for I am a sinner. Humility. Recognizing the true power of God manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, and the right response is one of humility. I am nothing compared to how great this God is. The second characteristic of true faith is trust. It's humility and it's trust. We see this uh, embodied for us by the centurion in verse 7. I didn't presume to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. All you have to do is say the word. That, that is the, uh, such a deep and profound statement of trust. You don't even need to be near him. You don't need to see him. You don't need to diagnose what he's suffering from because you have all the power, Jesus. And I trust that there's power in your word of healing. Just say the word. I believe that you can do it. And that's a definition of faith that continues down to this day, 2,000 years later. Do you believe that God's word, that Jesus' word, can do and will do what he says? That's kind of the, the simple summary of what faith is. Do you believe that Jesus can do it? You know, there are all these different metaphors of trust throughout the scripture a child trusts a father. A flock trusts a shepherd. The sick trust the physician. And think about each of those metaphors. Each of those biblical metaphors is pointing us to trust the bare word of God. A child who hears his father and trusts that what he has said is true and it will happen. The, the sheep wandering and lost that hears the word of the shepherd call out this way and comes running. The sick, the weary, who hear the prescription of the doctor and say, yeah, I'll do that. I'll rest. Faith is humble trust that Jesus will do what he says he will do. Now, I think the end of this story is really significant, too. I haven't talked about it too much, but verse 10, it says, When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It matters that the servant is healed. Jesus' word, we don't even see Jesus uh, do a hocus-pocus or wave a magic wand. We don't even hear him say the words, may his servant be healed. But he is. Because his authority is generous and good. But the hardest part for you and me, at least the hardest part for me, and I'm guessing it's the hardest part for you, is how do we move from this story to our lives? Have you ever uh, thought to yourself, well, sure, it would be nice if I could walk around with Jesus. 
If I could send some friends to him and he could say a word and heal the stuff in my life that's gone wrong. You ever feel that way? You see, we have to move from this single story to the larger story of the gospel, the larger story of the work that Jesus has done, not only in the life of the centurion's servant, but in your life and in my life and in the life of the world. How do we get there? Well, I think we have to read this little interaction through gospel-tinted eyes. Because Jesus, as we've said, is the man with all the authority. But what did he do with all of his authority? He gave it up. He yielded it all. He did not lord it over others. But he divested himself of the full authority of God. And went to the cross. And on the cross... Jesus, the man with all the authority, became the servant, the suffering servant for you and for me. And what does it say about the servant at the start of this passage? The centurion had a servant who he highly valued, and he was at the point of death. And Jesus Christ, the one with all authority and all power, became the servant, and he went not just to the point of death, but into the yawning mouth of death. For you and me. Gave it all up. And what the Bible tells us, maybe most clearly in Philippians 2, is that through that work of sacrifice, Jesus has been highly exalted. And it's only by his going to the cross, by his dying for you and me, that Christ now takes his rightful place of authority at the right hand of God in heaven. It's that story, it's that larger story that tells us today that we can trust Jesus. He is the servant king who stewarded his authority for us generously so that we would know God and so that our sins would be forgiven. So what does this story mean for you and me today? Based on this story, these 10 verses, who is Jesus and how should you respond to who Jesus is? Two things. Acknowledge the stewarded, generous authority of Jesus Christ. Stop resisting. Stop doubting. Stop wondering. We read it in the Heidelberg Catechism. God is God, and He can do it, and He wants to do it for you. His heart is generous and loving and kind towards you. Acknowledge and receive that authority today. And the second thing, respond. Respond with humble trust in Jesus. That all will be made well. Right? That's where this passage ends it ends with the servant being healed and we live with hope in the promise that one day what is true of the servant will be true of all of this everything broken in your life everything that you have consigned to being beyond repair it will be healed on the day that our authoritative servant king returns
Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for this passage and others like it that introduce us to who Christ is. And so over the next several months, would you work in us as a community, not just individually that we would come to a fuller and better understanding of who Jesus is, but together we would. And that we would respond together with humble trust in full dependence on our Savior who died and rose again so that we would know that all will be healed. We pray this all today in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.